It's a funny place to be, stuck in a seemingly mundane world with an inner knowing that the universe is so much more than our mortal minds can comprehend. Yet we all have the capacity to know peace and our oneness with the wholeness of life. And through these interviews, discussions, and reflections, it is my intention to share this possibility. I'm Ryan Kurzak, and this is the Kriya Yoga Podcast. Today and this afternoon, we're going to talk about um, the foundations for effective Kriya Yoga practice. A lot of this will be common sense, uh, if you think about it. Um, mostly what we're going to be talking about is um, what kind of foundation do you need in order to make the most of um, this process. We talked a little bit about this this morning, and so I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the psychological aspects of things, because I think we... We went over that enough. <clears throat> Kriya Yoga is really, um, it's a way of, kind of living your life. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of being. Um, when you start adjusting, again, your thoughts, your emotions, uh, the things that you do so that it's supportive of awakening or clarity, um, then you're really practicing Kriya Yoga. Everything, needs, everything you do needs to, to fall under this. So it's not just simply learning a meditation technique or saying you're part of a tradition. And this is often why uh, many people come to the path and then they don't necessarily stay with the path um, because it is work. It is a lot of work. However, um, the great thing about it is if you become good at anything in your life, I mean, if you have some kind of skill that you have achieved a level of mastery with or you just have knowledge about, everything that you did to achieve that will translate over to your Kriya Yoga practice. One of Yogananda's um, more advanced students, uh, James Lin, he was a successful uh, business person. Uh, pretty wealthy millionaire for his time. And Yogananda would say that one of the reasons that he was so successful is because he already knew how to be successful. It's just he knew how to be successful in business. So if you take that same kind of drive, if you take that same kind of energy and apply it to your spiritual practice, you will also be successful there. It's also important to remember that getting skill or becoming successful in anything doesn't happen overnight. And as we talked about earlier, it does require some level of sacrifice. And so when we think about the Kriya Yoga practice, um, when we think about making a sacrifice, oftentimes people think of making a sacrifice to a sacred fire or doing some kind of ritualistic sacrifice. Well, the real sacrifices that make all the difference is how we sacrifice uh, the distractions of our life to a higher purpose. And when you sacrifice those distractions, the higher purpose will reveal itself. Basically, the whole process of Kriya Yoga isn't about making anything better. It's not about making you into a superhuman. It's not about um, turning you into something you're not. It's not about making you more spiritual because you can't get more spiritual than you already are. You are already as spiritual as you can get. 
But what you can do is you can remove uh, those coverings or those veils or those quirks or those characteristics which obscure the expression of that spirit. So always remember that it's a natural process. And if you can keep that in mind and look long term, if you look long term, way down the road, um, you can be successful in this. So what's the first thing uh, that we need to know in order to be uh, a good Kriya Yogi and to have a good foundation? We need to know how to meditate. That's probably a good first step because it's in meditation where you're going to find um, spaciousness to get some distance and some perspective on your life because uh, too often we're caught up in our life and we can't see what needs to change or we can't see where we are sabotaging ourselves now of course having a teacher someone to bounce off ideas and to look at you from a different perspective can be helpful but through meditation, you can learn to get that sense of uh, perspective and spaciousness to become more self-aware. And to meditate well, um, the first thing you have to do is just decide that you are going to meditate every day. Whether you like it or not, you're going to get up and you're going to meditate every day. And in the beginning, you might not be very good at it. But it's the initial intention which starts, starts to set the stage um, for skill in meditation to develop. Um, when I first started meditating, I was almost done with college, as I said earlier. Um, I was not a healthy person. Um, I stayed up a little too late. I didn't hang out with very supportive people. Um, I was lazy. Uh, luckily, I had some intelligence so I could kind of make up for all that stuff. But um, when I first started meditating, I got this little wooden chair. I thought I saw one around here that looked just like it, but maybe it was somewhere else. I got this little wooden chair, and it was hard. It didn't have a cushion on it. And I picked that specifically, not because I was raised Catholic and I needed to suffer, but um, because I knew that the uncomfortableness would keep me paying attention. I wouldn't get tired. I wouldn't fall asleep because I didn't really like sitting in this chair. And then I didn't really know how to meditate. I had a general idea, but I knew that if you took a candle and you put it there and you just gazed at the candle flame and you let everything kind of sink into that candle flame, that that was a type of meditation. So I would do that. And it took me a long time to get beyond suffering through seven minutes of staring at a candle flame. Uh, and I did that for at least six months. I still didn't know what I was doing, but I, I was... I was trying, I had the intention, and even though I wasn't really meditating well, um, what that did was it created the groove, or the samskara, or the habit, such that as time went on, well, once I did know how to meditate, I could really put that to work. You know, I already had the habit. I could just sit down and I could focus on something. Also, um, many of you have heard me talk about this before, um, I was in a relationship at the time. Um, I'd been in a relationship for about four or five years, and we were living together. And um, I enjoyed sleeping in the same bed uh, with uh, my girlfriend at the time. And I noticed, though, that when I did that, I didn't really want to get out of bed. I didn't want to, I didn't want to you know, get up and go meditate because it was warm. It was cozy. Oh, why go sit in that hard chair and stare at a candle flame when you could just have a pleasant morning? And uh, I decided that that wasn't going to work. So... I said to my girlfriend at the time, 
I said, you know, uh, I think I'm going to go sleep in the other room. <laughs> I'm not going to sleep in here anymore because I need to get up and meditate. And uh, that was very difficult because uh, she took it kind of personally. And I had to explain that it wasn't anything personal. It's just what I had to do in order to achieve what I wanted to achieve. And I got this cot that was also extremely uncomfortable. Why? Because am I going to want to stay in bed and sleep all day? I didn't really like doing that anyway. But was I really going to want to do that if I was sleeping on an uncomfortable cot? No. So I set everything up such that one way or the other, I was going to get up and I was going to uh, meditate to the best of my ability and develop that habit. Now, time went on and eventually I didn't need to do those things anymore. Meaning I learned how to sit up straight. I learned how to stay awake. I learned how to concentrate without the need of the chair. I learned how to wake up at 4 or 5 a.m. and just get out of bed and go do what I needed to do, no matter who or what was near me at the time. But that took a few years of um, practice. Um, so when you get started, you need to do whatever it takes to have, or at least try to have, a consistent, solid meditation practice. And you know, most of you are old enough that you've probably experienced this by now. When you do something like that consistently, you start to realize that it really doesn't matter how you feel, you can still get up and go do what you need to do. So what I found is after I reached a certain age, um, I recognized that what I thought about something, whether I enjoyed it or not, didn't really matter. What it came down to was does it need to get done? So my, my the way I look at things as uh, the way I look at things is, is it necessary? Does it need to happen? If I don't want to do it, who cares? Because it needs to be done. And the more that you practice doing that, <clears throat> the more successful you'll be because then you're not going to be driven by your mind or your emotions anymore. And I'm not saying that your mind and emotions aren't useful. They are. But you don't want them to be the thing that determines how you live your life. And the practice of yoga, when we talk about truthfulness, non-stealing, the yamas and niyamas, um, those things, you have to learn to do them whether you want to or not, right? Because once you learn that you can do them no matter what, then you start to get more confident, not in an egotistical way, but you start to realize that you have uh, more skill and more capacity than you think. And that's a good thing because when uh, Roy Davis, when he spoke to Yogananda and called him master, or when Yogananda called Sri Yukteswar master, he wasn't, call, he wasn't calling him master for any other reason than that is a that is a affirmation that this person I'm learning from has mastered their states of consciousness. Like for example, I think the term maestro also means master. And so you can call someone a maestro. It means that they're a master of whatever it is they're a maestro of. Um, and for Kriya Yoga to work, to really work, not just to be some pleasant um, pastime or some thing that you're around people that just make you feel good because you share the same beliefs, but for it to actually do what it's supposed to do, you have to become a master of your states of consciousness. Otherwise, it's not going to work. So the first step is developing discipline on one thing, ideally on meditation. Um, the next thing to be successful with Kriya Yoga is to be curious and willing to learn. Now, some people 
can pick up um, the Bhagavad Gita or the Yoga Sutras or other spiritual texts, and they open it up, and they read it, and they say, great, I completely understand that. Some people do that. Some people pick up the book and they say, he wants me to read what? Uh, I can't even get through the first paragraph of this. Well, there's two things going on there. Number one, if you find that you don't understand what you're reading, um, that doesn't mean that you stop trying. Because the Bhagavad Gita, the Yoga Sutras, these are prime texts to understand what the spiritual path is about. What we have to do is learn to recognize that sometimes we don't understand something from the very beginning, and we begin to shift gears to say, I don't understand it, but I want to understand it. And I mean, you really want to understand it. You know, it's like when you're talking to someone who knows something that you really want to get, but they talk to you and they try to explain it to you, and it just, it just fries your brain. You don't know what they're saying. But if you stick with them and if you keep trying to learn, you believe you can learn, what happens is in time, little breakthroughs come through and you begin to see clearly what they're trying to share. So the same thing can happen with spiritual texts. If you don't understand what a teacher is saying, and it's an authentic, clear, discerning teacher, then you got to go in and internally tell yourself with intention, I might not get it, but I want to get it. And then you even take it a step further and you can say, I might not get it and I want to get it, and I know I can get it. Because a lot of people walk around confused. And why are they confused? Because they're telling themselves all the time, I'm confused. And so if they keep telling themselves, I'm confused, well, of course, every situation they get in is going to be confusing. But if you start saying, even if you, even if you really don't have the information yet, if you start saying and feeling, feeling is the key, if you start saying and feeling, no, I, I can get this. Like, I, can, I can figure this out. I'm not confused. I can figure this out. It might not happen that day. It might not happen next week, but maybe in a month, maybe in a year, all of a sudden the things that you thought you were confused about previously, when you start changing, the glimpses come, the, the ideas come, the, the revelations come. And, oh, well, that makes perfect sense because really that's how we learn. Sure, we can learn through uh, like laborious study, but even when you're studying something that you don't get, when you really understand it, it clicks, right? It's like there comes a time when all of a sudden it just makes sense. But you have to first have the idea that it can and does make sense. Uh, Mr. Davis would talk about times with Yogananda. Um, I wish I remembered this story as clearly as I want. Um, Yogananda was at a gathering and um, he was saying that uh, amongst all of you, you know, there are some people who will be free in this lifetime. Um, there will be some people that will be free before they die. There will be some that are already free. And Roy said he could see people like looking around thinking, well, who is it? You know, <laughs> Who's it going to be? And, and that's common. That makes sense. But you know, a, a shift would be, oh, it's going to be me. You know, I'm going to be free in this lifetime. I'm going to be one of those people that he's talking about. And Mr. Davis would also always say that uh, <clears throat> he knew that... Uh, that if, if someone in the world could be enlightened, if anyone else in this world could be enlightened, he said he always felt, not in an egotistical way, but that he could do it too. And he even went on to say, and if no one in this world could be enlightened, he held the notion, the feeling that, well, if no one else could, I can do it. And again, this is not to be egotistical, this is just, 
if you believe in yourself and you can feel it more than it has a greater likelihood of happening now again i'm not going to say 100 because you know life's a funny thing <laughs> but what you'll find is people who actually try to accomplish something they're more likely to succeed than people who, who never ever try you know so um the next aspect of this is finding some way to believe that it is possible for you to understand what's being taught and even if you have difficulty with discipline don't say oh i'm lazy you know my dad said this about me or whatever you want to make up you say you know i think i can be disciplined i think i can find strength in this and of course um if you have a lot of resistance well that's when you call uh isha das and and set up a, a counseling session and he'll, he'll bust you right through right <laughs> now that's where you find that's where you find your help with a with a counselor to help you see the difficulties there um, so meditation the belief that you can do these things um, and then then we start to get to the hard work uh, because it, it takes consistency day after day after day of just continuously uh, not subjecting yourself to the process but uh day after day of trying and again i always want to refer you to people who've been successful in any field um you know everyone thinks well maybe not i don't know it depends on if you like basketball or not everyone thinks michael jordan right you know he makes all these all these wonderful shots and he's he's scored so many points well, how many baskets do you think he missed right how many points do you think he didn't make uh, when people invent things uh, how many tries did it take to invent the light bulb somewhere over more than a thousand i know that but imagine imagine if you were trying to invent something where would you give up 25 times 100 times 500 times but the things that make you successful are when you're just going to keep going you're just going to keep going no matter what so this is this is where the hard work comes in and the hard work is figuring out what this is all about figuring out what this is all about and in the beginning you have a general idea when i first got involved what did i think was going to happen well i read autobiography of a yogi so i thought i was going to have two bodies uh, that i could materialize in different places um, i thought i wasn't going to have to sleep anymore um, I thought I could make perfume come from my hand magically. Um, and beyond that, I thought I was going to understand what Sri Yukteswar talked about, you know, this vast infinite consciousness. Um, I still don't have two bodies. I can't do the perfume thing. I'm good at becoming invisible, although I'm not going to do it right now. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I had these ideas, and I had this idea of what God was, what the divine was. And I thought, that's what I'm going to know. That's what I'm going to be able to realize. And what I found was that over the years, while I had that initial intention, that initial idea, um, my understanding of what the path was all about shifted a little at a time. So instead of having, uh, again, being raised Catholic, uh, the Christ consciousness idea was very strong in my mind. The idea of, of, of a savior type person, this, 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 um, like an actual person or a personage is uh, up in heaven helping me, that kind of a thing. It started with that. But in time, it became clear to me at least that um, 
Like the idea of the Christ consciousness was more of a universal light or universal state of being that was kind of part of all of us. And we could access that. And then in time, it, it changed to more, uh, I guess you could say, absolute, uh, as though there was this um, infinite consciousness that ran through all of us that we couldn't define, we couldn't think about, we couldn't see, but we could experience it through, through meditation. And so my ideas of, of, of where I started to where I, I am, at least at this point in time, changed over time. So I'm telling you this because you have to be willing to start with where you are. All right. So if you think that Yogananda is up in heaven dispensing blessings to you and paying attention to every little thing that you do in life and that's what you need, great. It doesn't matter. Use that because that will inspire you. And because... Uh, as they say in the Bhagavad Gita, there are all these different kinds of faith. So if you worship that, well, you're still worshiping pure consciousness, the infinite, just in a particular form, right? It's not a whole lot different than someone who's worshiping the formless version of things. It's just this has a form and the other doesn't. So we don't want to be critical of, of other people's beliefs, of how they approach the practice. And we also want to be very clear on what we need in order to uh, feel inspired. I remember I used to spend a lot of time um, meditating on the forms of um, Vishnu and Ganesh. And what I would do is, you know, I had little statues or pictures and Ganesh has an axe and uh, Vishnu has a discus and these types of things. I would, I would look at those pictures and I would research what does the discus mean? What does the axe mean? What does this, this particular mudra mean? And when I would meditate on it, I would it fully engaged my imagination as though I was seeing that being in front of me. And it was huge. It wasn't just a person in front of me. It was bigger than I could imagine. And, and when I saw the hand in blessing, I imagined a radiant light coming out of it. And when I, when I thought about the discus in Vishnu's hand, I, I kind of contemplated what that represented um, uh, in the imagery of that. And by doing that, that helped to create a sense of devotion, but it also helped me to control my mind. Because if I'm spending all that time trying to visualize Vishnu and think about his discus and his light and the feeling of being in the presence of divinity, I don't have time to think about, you know, whether that bill is paid or whether my neighbor is going to go dump trash on my lawn again or, you know, I don't have time to think about that stuff. So it, it trains, it trained me to become one-pointed, to become uh, focused. So whatever you need to do that, figure that out for you and let that become your point of focus while realizing that as time goes on, your understanding may change. Your understanding of what spirit is may change. Um, and that's okay. That's, you want that to happen. If that doesn't happen, there may be some stagnation there, right? This is not, if, 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 you, if your devotion and your faith was the same at the end, as it was at the beginning, what, what went on there? You know, not much. Just like when you're in a relationship. If your relationship with someone is the exact same as it is in the beginning as it was at the end, well, did you really grow together? Did you really learn anything? Did you really understand what it was like to be in a relationship? And in my experience, the spiritual path is completely like being in a relationship. That's why I like the idea of, uh, uh, you know, when... Uh, when monks and nuns and priests, you know, they, they consider God, Christ, like their divine beloved. Well, that's a very useful, that's a very useful image to have because uh, 
when you're meditating in the beginning, yes, you're just trying to figure out how to sit still and ignore all the crap in your mind. That's a good first step. But eventually, once you work through that stuff, you begin to enjoy meditation because you are, we can use the word communion, you are actually having a conversation with what I call the rest of you, you know, the, the, the bigger you, the, the, the infinite consciousness. And so when you're in there, when I'm standing there meditating, I'm not just, you know, Om Namah Shivaya just to like block out thoughts. I'm, it feels as though I'm interacting with something. Like, I mean, I know it's me, but there's a, there's a, a I think of it like a conversation. So when I get involved in contemplation, I don't treat it like a mantra where I'm thinking, you know, what is it? What is divine love? What is divine love? What is divine love? I meditate and I get clear and then I stop and I ask, well, what is divine love? And I wait. I listen. Because think about it. When you're in a good relationship, do you just talk all the time? Well, hopefully not. You listen to the other person. And when you're in a cosmic relationship, well, you might have to listen a little while because it takes, it takes some time for the messages to, to go through time and space. But once they're there, they're, they're there in a flash. And when your meditation starts to become like that, you don't not look forward to meditation. You don't get up and think, oh, I got to do this again. You want to do it. You want to do it because it's interesting, because it's pulling you more fully inward into this, this inner consciousness and you are exploring more and learning more and going deeper uh, the trouble is you start to really lose a little bit of your addictions to the world, which means that the stuff that normal people like, you don't necessarily get into as much. You'll still do it. It'll be all right. But, you know, you don't get all excited about a lot of the things that most people do. Um, but you, you learn to find this, this joy within, and that becomes supremely satisfying. So we want to take time to get to that place and realize it's like cultivating a relationship. Now, when it comes to contemplation, um, that also takes patience. I think, or I feel, and I've experienced that through this path, um, I have just about all of my questions answered, my spiritual questions, that is. And I, you know, even though I made the joke yesterday about, you know, what really happens when you die. I've got some ideas and I don't really think it matters because I think what's going to happen is the body's going to fall away and I'm going to be like, oh, here I am <laughs> and I'm just going to be somewhere else. So e even in that regard, you can and you should, in, in my mind, get your questions answered so that you are at peace. So you want to meditate, become calm, organize your mind and your body. Once that happens and you are established in the process, the next step is to start contemplating what you want to know. And that can take a while, but it's worth it. I remember one time, uh, there's one, one particular kind of idea in the Gita um, and in spiritual literature. You know, on one hand it says, um, you are not the doer. God is the doer. And there's the idea. You are not the doer. God is the doer. But then there's the other idea that God is everything. Okay, well, aren't I part of everything? So if God is everything, God is the doer, but I'm not the doer. Well, you can see how that might not make some sense, right? <laughs> I mean, is that not confusing? It's a little confusing. So I spent 
at least a year and a half, and I think it was longer than that, at least a year and a half with that phrase repeating over in my mind. And in my mind, um, I don't get reverent with it. I talk like I would talk to anyone that I'm, I trust and that, that I can speak directly to. I'd say, so God is God is the doer. I'm not the doer, but God is everything. But somehow, what, I am everything. What the hell's going on? Like, that's what I would do. I, I would I would kind of have that, that conversation. I would stop and I would listen. I'd meditate some more. I would stop, and the next day I'd do it again. And the next day I'd do it again. And the next day I'd do it again. Fast forward a year and a half later, one day I'm sitting in my chair, which I swiped from CSA because they got new chairs, and I grabbed one from the meditation hall because I figured it was full of spiritual power. And um, I was sitting in the chair, and I contemplated it. And all of a sudden, my, con- my awareness just shifted. It was like I wasn't in my body. I wasn't aware of my body. And the answer to that question, the understanding of that question, it was plain as day. I still can't tell you it because it wasn't words. It was like a, it, it was like a knowing. It was like a direct experience of, of how, that, how that could be reconciled beyond words. And from that point forward, I don't really have that question anymore. So what you want to do is be active in the process. Do your best. Um, and I guess I would say, don't feel bad if you don't have a lot of questions, because you don't have to have a lot of questions. Um, but be active in the process, and also, if you have serious questions that you're trying to figure out spiritually, you can ask other people, but more than likely what you have to do is you have to contemplate the questions, and you have to do it repeatedly, and you have to do it with patience and listen, and then one day you will get the answer. One day whether it's this lifetime or theoretical your next lifetime, but if the intention remains the same, it has to come into fruition. Now, another foundation for this process, which um, is very probably the, the, the generator or the, the powerhouse behind all of this, is truthfulness, satya. Um, this, this is something that if you do not engage in truthfulness, it's not likely that you will get your questions answered. If you do not engage in truthfulness, it is not necessarily likely, um, and of course, I'm sure there's an outlier somewhere where this doesn't matter, but we're just going to say for most people, um, it's not likely that your spiritual path is going to be fulfilling for you, because the spiritual path is all about truth. Now, what is truth? What is satya? Um, it has many levels. The first level that we can relate to is simply being honest with your words. Not harmful, but honest with your words, without malice behind it. Some people think they're truthful and really they're just trying to be a jerk. This is being truthful without malice. Um, the next level of truthfulness is in your own integrity. What are you about and when I say what are you about, it doesn't have to be the absolute what are you about. What are you about right now in your life? What is true for you? What is authentic for you right now in your life? Are you living with integrity in all areas of your life? Um, when it comes to your relationships, do you have integrity with the people that you're, that you're in a relationship to? Do you secretly have desires for someone else? Do you 
think that this is just a stepping stone to something else. Well, if you do, you're not having integrity with your relationship. Um, some people have asked me about um, becoming like a, a, a Kriya Yoga teacher, and I, I stress this is an extremely important point because you also have to have integrity about what you know and what you don't know. It doesn't mean you have to know everything. You just have to know what you don't know. Meaning, maybe you're a wonderful meditation teacher. Maybe you can teach chanting through the chakras and you can teach mantra. Um, and people come and, and you're able to lead a good meditation group. But someone comes up to you and they start asking you deeper questions about the Gita or the Yoga Sutras. And what a lot of people do, I've seen, they start making stuff up. They start acting like, oh, well, you know, this is what it means. And you listen to them. <laughs> Maybe you should just said, I don't know. And there is more power in admitting you don't know than there is in trying to make stuff up. So you can be probably one of the best spiritual teachers in the world if all you do is just say, I don't know. <laughs> because at least you're being honest. And then that power uh, comes through. And so you are then able to recognize truth, meaning What's the biggest, what's, what's one of the biggest, most uh, problematic things that people do? They read too widely and they try to make sense of a whole bunch of different points of view. And that doesn't work. You know, I know people who follow a particular uh, spiritual teacher and some who follow another spiritual teacher and some who follow Kriya Yoga. And what I think they should do is this person should follow that teacher. This person should follow that path. This person should do that. It doesn't matter whether you understand. If you, it doesn't matter whether you understand exactly what the other person is saying. It's you being true to your own path and recognizing that they have their own way. But anyway, um, when you start to become established in truth, then when you pick up the Bhagavad Gita or when you pick up the Yoga Sutras, since you are established in truth, you will start to recognize what is true there. If you read someone's commentary, you know, you, you read the Yoga Sutras and you get commentaries where they take like something like a, a four or five word Sanskrit Sutra. Next thing you know, there's like 20 pages written about it. Well, I don't think you need that much. But if you find that and you're reading the 20 pages and you're established in truth, what are you going to do? You're going to zero right in on the three or four, uh, three or four sentences that explain what's actually going on there. And all the rest, you won't even worry about. When you are sitting in a, a, a seminar like this, hopefully you're sitting in a seminar with someone who's making sense, um, you'll be able to recognize what is true for you, what you need to take from it. If you're sitting in a seminar like this and the person's just talking nonsense, you will recognize, yeah, I think I just need to go home. And I, I tell you that because um, when I was in Asheville, which uh, a lot of spiritual teachers come through Asheville, and um, Mr. Davis would always ask me if I went and visited any of them. And I would think, no, why should I? Because you know, I've already been 10 years learning from you and you make sense to me, so I don't really need to go see other people. But he kept, he was persistent in it. So finally I said, sure, I'll, I guess I'll go see some of these teachers. And some of these very well-known uh, name brand um, uh, teachers came through and I went and uh, I listened and I was thinking, what are they saying like it just didn't make sense and then someone would ask a question some something very simple about meditation something that probably anyone in this room could answer in two sentences a half hour later they've talked in so many circles that i haven't even followed one of them and then the person in the front of the audience goes 
oh yeah, that's deep. And I thought, what is going on here? So then I asked a question. <laughs> I raised my hand, I asked a question. What's that? Yeah, I went and I asked a question. Again, something simple. And what came to me was, oh, the reason you're, you're asking that question, you're interested in meditation, is because your mommy and your daddy didn't treat you right, and you have self Like, he was, like, just tearing into me. And I'm thinking, what? <laughs> so I got up and I left. And uh, that happened a few times. But there were other teachers where they weren't well-known at all. Like, no one, they didn't have hardly anyone in the audience. And I remember going to some of those lectures and thinking, this is beautiful. Like, they are speaking directly. It is clear. Why, why aren't more people here? So I'm sharing that with you because once you, once you are established in truth, not only will you know what is authentic, you'll be able to smell it, and you'll also be able to smell what is not authentic. And you won't waste your time on stuff which is just going to lead you down difficult rabbit holes and confuse you and make you wonder. Um, so you become stronger and you become less vulnerable to people who kind of just want you in the audience to make some cash. And you'll become more receptive to people who they're there, as Sri Kishore would say, for your, your, your own. They want your self-improvement. They want you to be better. Um, and finally, with the idea of truthfulness, um, there, is, there is another power in truthfulness. They say that um, when a yogi is established in truthfulness, um, whatever they say has to come to pass. Like, it has to happen. And um, that doesn't mean uh, we can. We, it's easy to interpret it as saying as, as meaning uh, they have like a power that just they just say things and it's going to happen. It doesn't mean that. What it means is they can't say something that's not true. Meaning, you know, if you're if you're with someone and they're going through a difficult time, what do you usually say? Oh, it'll be all right. You know, I'm sure you'll get through it. It'll it'll all work out. And that's nice and that's pleasant. And I had people say that to me too, and I. I didn't like it after a little while. Um, but what happens is if you're around someone and they're in a difficult situation and you are established in truth and you know it's going to be okay, then you can say, oh, I wouldn't worry about it. You'll be fine. And it will be. But if you're with someone in a difficult situation and you're established in truth and you want to say, oh, it'll be all right. The words won't even come out of your mouth. You won't be able to say anything. And there's nothing wrong with that, too, because silence is profoundly helpful in those situations rather than just placating someone. So you, you, you then begin to learn um, to speak the truth, what is truth, but it's not because you're in your mind choosing. It's that you just can't help but to either say the truth or refrain from saying anything at all. Does this make sense? And that's, a, again, a beautiful thing. It's, it's, it's got a lot of power to it. And you can even... Uh, I was telling Jasmine about this the other day. Um, in astrology, uh, there is this old Indian uh, astrologer, and I read an article by him one time, and um, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but someone interviewed him and said, what is the most important thing an astrologer can do to be a good astrologer? And he said, always tell the truth. That's what he said. Now, why is that so important for an astrologer? Well, if you know astrology, you know that you're, you're looking at all this mathematics, you're looking at all these variables, you're looking at just an immense array of possibilities. Well, if you're established in truth and you always tell the truth, someone asks you a question, will I get married in three years? Well, you will go through the chart, and if that's possible, you will find the reason that, yes, they will get married in three years. 
if it's not in there, you'll look and 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 it won't ever show up. Because if, if it's not true, you won't recognize it in that situation. Another thing you can do, which I, I, I use a lot, and maybe it's a misuse of my profound yogic powers, I can find things. And what I mean by that is, I, I, I studied this idea of truthfulness, and um, I would lose my keys and my wallet and misplace this and that all the time. And sometimes I go days missing things. And one day it occurred to me, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, I know exactly where that is. I'm, and I'm going to feel like, you know, when you've lost something and then you find it, that, ooh, that aha moment, like, there it is. It just feels good. So I would, I would bring up that feeling and almost say, it's, it's in my hand right now. It's, it's right there. It's in my hand. I just found it. And I would say, I just found it. And sure enough, every time that happened, within 30 seconds, my eye would just be drawn to exactly where I left my keys. Or I would just remember, oh, I left my wallet at the office you know, last night, and it would always be where it is. So once you become, begin to become established in truth, you can start to uh, find things. <laughs> but not just finding things. Remember we talked about having an understanding of, of what uh, maybe a spiritual teaching is? Well, you do the same thing. You're finding something spiritual. So you say, oh, I'm about to have this breakthrough. I'm about to have this realization. This is what it's going to feel like when I know exactly what this, this line in the Yoga Sutras means. Or this is what it's going to feel like when I understand chapter 15 in the Bhagavad Gita. And that brings it closer and quicker to you. But what's necessary to be able to do that? At every other time, practicing truth. You see, it's like by practicing truth, you're building up a, a reservoir of something. And then when you need it, you can tap into it. I'm getting a little esoteric here, but you understand what I'm saying? Um, so truthfulness is um, profound. And um, in Vasista's Yoga, they talk about these gatekeepers of liberation, the things that uh, if you do them, they will lead to liberation. And um, it's like self-inquiry, contentment, um, the company of holy people. And the fourth one I always forget. Um, well, I've got it right here. Look at that. Um, but what it says is, if you can't attend to all of these, uh, but if you can just attend to one, all the rest of them will, will become uh, apparent to you. And one more story about truth. There is an astrological story. Let's see. Ah, here it is. Yeah. So the four gatekeepers are self-control, inquiry, contentment and the company of holy people yeah good company uh, but they say that e even if you can't do all of those if you keep the company of just if you just pick one the rest of them will develop in you and there's a story an astrological story of an individual who's getting ready to go through a very difficult um, astrological period and when you go through this period it's related to Saturn supposedly one loses all one's good fortune one's virtues all disappear, and you're just basically going to suffer for <laughs> a good while. Um, and in the story, this is about to happen. And Saturn comes and says, I'm about to influence your life. And the guy trembles. He's in his bed. And all the virtues that are within him hear that, and they start to leave. They start to flee through his chest, all the good qualities that he had. And the last one to leave was truth, truthfulness. 
And the man immediately grabbed the hold of truthfulness by the foot before uh, truthfulness could leave. And he said, all the rest of these qualities can go, but you have to stay. No matter what, you have to stay. And uh, truthfulness said, well, I guess if you're going to insist. So truthfulness went back into his heart. But then when all the other virtues saw that truthfulness wasn't going anywhere, they all said, well, if truthfulness isn't going anywhere, well, we have to come right back too. So truthfulness is like the anchor, the key uh, to making all of this stuff work. And truthfulness does not mean harshness, either with yourself or with others. So remember, if you don't know something, that's okay. You admit it. If you are in the middle of a process and you haven't come to a conclusion about which way to go or what to do or um, whether you're going to get out of a, a difficult situation, you don't have to... You don't have to use toxic positivity and imagine that you're going to talk yourself out of it. You just simply have to admit, I'm in a situation, I don't necessarily know when it's going to end, but I know it will eventually. And that that kind of truthfulness will allow you to kind of ride these waves and remain centered and content throughout uh, the whole process because the spiritual path is, is, is a rocky one. I know they act like it's not. Many people tell you that it's not. Um, but if you're not being challenged when you go into your spiritual path, you're probably not on, your, on a spiritual path. Um, and there comes a time when uh, what happens is uh, you learn that you can handle the challenges, right? I mean, this is the important thing. It's not that you're going to reach a place where there are no challenges. What you're going to learn is you and with the support of whatever spiritual strength or individuals are around you, that you're going to get through it. And then you feel confident. Um, in astrology, there is uh, the planet Mars. And the planet Mars is a soldier. And the planet Mars is a fighter. And the planet Mars is considered to be a very um, aggressive type of planet. And many people think of Mars, they say, you've got a strong Mars. Why? Because you're a jerk and you want to start fights all the time and you're aggressive and you really just you know, barrel through everything. They say, oh, you've got a strong Mars. That's not a strong Mars. That is an overcompensating Mars. That's a Mars that's trying to prove something. A strong Mars is like the person who's sitting in this room now who's either extremely talented in the martial arts or has been a soldier, and they're not sitting there thinking, I can't wait to karate chop somebody. <laughs> but they know, they're not thinking anything at the moment. They're just sitting there listening. But if someone comes through that door threatening you, they're up, they've taken care of it. They know they have the capacity to handle the situation and be done with it. When Mars, Mars is also a farmer. So in the olden days, most of your soldiers were farmers, right? So in the olden days, when you needed a, a, an army, you, were, you got all the farmers together and you raised a fert or whatever they call it. But when the war was over, what happened? All the soldiers went back to farming. So that is the idea of a healthy Mars. And on the spiritual path, you want to have the fire element, Arjuna, uh, the, the third chakra, that, that fiery power um, to attend to this. But that fiery power is simply a confidence and a skillfulness and ability to deal with what needs dealt with. And at other times, you're okay. So that's what's going to happen while you are still embodied in this life, and you've made a lot of progress on your spiritual path. Something still can run, a truck can still run you over, <laughs> but um, 
otherwise, barring that, uh, when things arise, you're, you're not going to get leveled by it. And if you do get leveled, you know you're going to get right back up eventually. And you're going to keep going. And that's the kind of uh, inner strength that I'm sure Mr. Davis had. I know Yogananda had. Um, because even though we don't necessarily get into the specifics of their life, you know, they had stuff to deal with too. <laughs> they, weren't just, uh, they weren't just supermen. Even Yogananda, when you read his autobiography of Yogi, it might not seem like uh, he was troubled by difficulties in his life, but what happened early on in his life? His mother died. That devastated him. Of course, he transferred it to the idea of the Divine Mother, and there was some... He probably could have worked with a psychologist a little bit there, but um, <laughs> he worked with it. But even when Sri Yukteswar died, when he describes the death of Sri Yukteswar, is he just like, oh, great, you know, Sri Yukteswar is off in the infinite. It's wonderful. No, he's devastated. <laughs> he talks about crying. He talks about, you know, how, how he was even kind of angry at Sri Yukteswar. I think that's the case because he, 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 he left so soon. So even in the autobiography of Yogi, um, while it's not pointed out and it's not made, uh, made into an issue, um, even Yogananda had some things that he came up against. Um, in, uh, it used to be in the old version of Autobiography of Yogi, I think the one that Ananda puts out, um, but in Talks with Ramana Maharshi. Um, is anyone not familiar with Ramana Maharshi here? Okay. Well, Ramana Maharshi was, um, if I was ever going to want to meet anyone, <laughs> it would be him. <laughs> Makes me cry for some reason. I don't know why. <clears throat> but uh, Yogananda went and met with Ramana Maharshi. And this was after Yogananda was already the spiritual giant, right? You know, everyone looked to Yogananda as uh, just being this powerhouse of spirituality. And he goes to Ramana Maharshi. And what's he ask Ramana Maharshi? Why is there suffering in the world? Now, come on. This is a guy that everyone who knew him, like, you must have all the answers, right? And he goes to Ramana Maharshi and he says, why is there suffering in the world? And many people can write that off as though, oh, he was just doing that for his students. I don't think so. Because if you, if you follow the rest of the, uh, the discussion, why is there suffering in the world? Uh, Ramana Maharshi says, um, he kind of goes into the, the general spiel of, well, who thinks there is suffering in the world? You know, who, who is it that, that perceives suffering? And Yogananda persists. He says, well, you know, tell me a little bit more. And he says, it is, it is the way. Suffering is the way that, that we learn in a way. And this is paraphrasing, by the way. And then Yogananda says, well, if, if God is all-powerful, now here's Yogananda, if God is all-powerful, why does he allow suffering to persist? This is Yogananda saying, if God is all-powerful, why doesn't Yogananda just ask God himself, right? But he asks, he asks Ramana Maharshi, and Ramana Maharshi says, it is the way, and Yogananda persists, and Ramana Maharshi says, it is the way, and finally Yogananda persists, and Ramana Maharshi doesn't respond. <laughs> so I'm telling you this because not to... Not to bring Yogananda in any way down. I'm not, that's not my goal here. It's to share with you that these, these teachers, they're like us in that they're, they were figuring stuff out too. And if they can go through these issues and figure this stuff out, well, so can we. You know, I was having a discussion with Ellen Grace O'Brien one time, 
and um, she was talking about um, the documentary on, on uh, Yogananda, and she said, well, the, the documentary was originally going in a direction to make Yogananda kind of just look human, look like us. And I thought, great, because if we have someone who's like us that can pull that off, well, then we don't have any more self-sabotaging because there's no more excuses. And then she said, but he wasn't like us. And then my heart sank because I thought, oh, man, really? Can't we just admit that he was human too? But then she followed up with, the reason he wasn't like us wasn't because he didn't go through the issues. It wasn't because he didn't have things to deal with or, or suffering to deal with, but that he kept on going, that he had the tenacity to go up against all those things and not stop and to keep trying and to keep meditating until eventually he figured out what he needed to figure out. And, um, you know, even Mr. Davis would say when he met Yogananda, Yogananda was definitely in a, what he would call like an absolute state. You know, he was more, wasn't quite like we know him in, in the autobiography of a yogi. He was, he described him a little bit as a little more aloof, but just as though he wasn't quite as fully engaged as though he was somewhere else, you know. Um, so uh, I tell these stories, again, not to bring any teacher, anyone that we revere down, but to, sh to kind of point out that these people, they were people, and by doing what we're going over this weekend, that's how they became what they became. This episode of the Kriya Yoga podcast was made possible by donations from Kriya Yoga apprenticeship students and supporters of our Patreon community at www.patreon.com forward slash Kriya Yoga.